and welcome to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr Ruby Rutter and this is the very first episode of our digital history series where we're looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. Today we're joined by Dr Heidi Twarik, a Canadian Research Chair and Associate Professor of International History and Public Policy at the University of British Columbia. Heidi's research examines the history and policy around media, communications, international organisations and platform governance and her 2019 book, News from Germany, The Competition to Control World Communications, 1900-1945, has won a number of prizes, including the 2020 Ralph Gomery Prize and the 2021 David Barclay Book Prize. Welcome Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today on what is our maiden voyage as a journal into the world of podcasting. Thanks so much for having me, Ruby. I'm excited to be here. Now, as you know, our first series focuses on digital histories and your work on the history and policy of communications and media technologies, particularly in relation to its impact on democracy, sits really comfortably within this theme. So I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us a little bit more about your work and what attracted you to these topics in particular. Yeah, so I I became very interested while I was figuring out what my dissertation topic would be in the question of how news was produced. So not so much in the content in the newspaper itself, the classic kind of content analysis, but I really wanted to understand the networks that influenced what became news in the first place. So why did some events get reported as news and others didn't? So I wanted to find a way to explore those powerful networks and hierarchies behind news and and landed on looking at news agencies, um, companies like Reuters or the Associated Press, um, which were founded in the mid 19th century around the same time as the spread of telegraphy, particularly submarine telegraphy. And this was my lens into the world of political, economic, technological, cultural and social networks that really influence what becomes news and what doesn't. And so in my first book, I looked at how political, economic elites, along with industrialists, journalists and academics, really try to influence both within Germany and around the world what type of news was being produced through news agencies over the course of the first 45 years of the 20th century. And so as I was writing this project, it was, of course, very much historical project grounded in in archives. But it was also one that that spoke to the present, because a lot of it was about how German elites tried to use new technologies like wireless and radio to influence how news was being produced, who would receive it, and how Germany was thought of. And this raised very many similar questions to what was being discussed at the time around how the internet was influencing democracy in the Arab Spring in 2011, or whether all of us being more connected was going to be a good or a bad thing. And interestingly, although many of the commentators, politicians, policymakers, and even those from other academic subjects would constantly talk about the internet as an unprecedented technological phenomenon. So many aspects of it kept popping up in my archives, the same kinds of debates, the questions of ownership, the ideas of seizing on new technology, the utopian vision of what a new technology could achieve. And so I thought, well, um, I think there's a role for historians here. And that was really the beginning of me being both very much a historian in the way we're all historians, but trying to make sure that that history actually was applied to the present, because it, it seemed quite urgent that we understood the internet was not unprecedented, but also that we teased out which bits of it were unprecedented because some parts indeed are something very unlike radio or wireless. Actually, my next question was going to be whether you find any overlaps in your research between the inception of new kinds of media and communication technologies in the early 20th century and today, 
And I suppose that the hot topic at the moment is Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. So I wonder if there were any kind of newspaper barren takeovers of a media company that we could perhaps compare to what's happening today with social media. Yeah, I mean, I think even the way you phrase the question shows a, a deep historical understanding that helps us to put Elon Musk, who's now purchased Twitter, into context. And that is that, that so often in a lot of the commentary around Twitter sort of focus on what's going on day to day and blah, blah, blah. But if we take a, a bit of a historical step back, um, it's part of a much broader and longer trend of media ownership being a really crucial thing to look at so that actually the business history of media is something that we need to take into account. And the history of what is happening with, with Musk at Twitter is absolutely a business history, and it needs to be fitted into a longer and broader history of wealthy individuals choosing to use and purchase media for their own purposes, some of which people may support politically and others of which they might find troubling. So we might think that the tech billionaires, we have Elon Musk and Twitter, we also have Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, and we have the, the widow of Steve Jobs, Laureen Powell Jobs, who purchased The Atlantic. But of course, we have older traditions of, of media barons who continue to be hugely influential, Rupert Murdoch in Australia, the UK and the US. And then in the time period that my book studies, uh, we have, of course, Lord Northcliffe in the UK with the Daily Mirror, Daily Mail and London Times. And we also have in the German case, a man called Alfred Hugenberg, who was an industrialist and then starts to create a, a vertically integrated chain of newspapers and news agency, advertising agencies, and even banks to lend to these newspapers. And he does this in pursuit of his right-wing politics. Now, that doesn't mean that that politics ends up getting sp supported specifically. His political party in the end isn't hugely successful, but he does, as other historians um, like Bernhard Fulda have argued too, it paves the way for a more right-wing politics, arguably helping to open the door to acceptability for the Nazis. So to me, Someone like Musk needs to be put in that much, much longer perspective. And that, I think, helps us to understand uh, what is going on and to think about why it is that in the era of the internet, we didn't end up with public service internet. So in the 1920s, we obviously end up with, in multiple places like the UK or Germany, we end up with public service forms of radio. The same happens with television, but we don't end up with that with the internet. And that to me is a, an interesting historical question for us to contemplate. I found it so interesting that when the impact of the Elon Musk takeover was starting to be felt on Twitter, that there was this palpable shock by so many at the idea that this platform and in many ways a community um, it could be owned by a single person. And I think it showed a real a gap in public awareness of how media companies have historically operated and that this has real ramifications for democracy. But there are increasingly news outlets um, starting up that receive their funding from Patreon subscriptions or crowdfunding, uh, such as Byline Times and I think uh, Tortoise Media. So do you think that models like this may be a way to enact a kind of public service internet or at least more successfully democratise funding for news media outlets? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, looking at the sort of 400 year history of news, if we go back to the, the beginning of newspapers as we knew them in the 17th century, historically, it's been very, very difficult to make money with news. Um, in the 19th century, you can think of newspapers arising and folding and so on. And then there are some like, say, The Guardian, who find their niche in, in Manchester, of course, by being an, an urban 
newspaper, but the vast majority of newspapers, small operations that find it very hard to make money. And the real exception to that, that rule is the sort of 30, 40 year period after the end of World War II, where in many places like the United States, owning a newspaper was almost like a license to print money. You were making amazing profit margins, 11, 12%, triple what you were if you owned a grocery store. And so with the rise of 24 hour cable news television, and then, of course, with the internet, which accelerates this, newspapers are no longer this license to print money. So for many people who perhaps grew up in that era from the 40s to the 80s, they feel like newspapers were always something you could make money with. But the truth is, in a 400-year perspective, that's more the exception than the rule. And so we find ourselves, I think, again in a situation where, for most, it's quite hard to make money with news. And we see a lot of experimentation with, with different business models, some of which are a small number of paying subscribers, um, then we have the, the Facebooks and Googles we can put into this universe. They're making their money from advertising, right? Which is why in a recession, they're starting to see a bit of a downturn. And then the question is whether there will be other models as well. And what we don't see, as I've said, is a kind of public service internet. And the question is what happens to public service broadcasters in the era of the internet. And we're seeing that obviously be uh, contested in many ways in the UK as to what the, the funding model of the BBC should continue to look like. And you mentioned before that it's worth viewing the internet through this lens of history repeating itself, but that there are also elements that are novel and specific to the internet. And I wonder if you could elaborate on on what those intricacies and complexities are that we're seeing develop now. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the the main ones is simply the the extreme volume of individualized data which companies hold about us which enables them to then serve us personalized advertisement. And even despite data regulations, there's just a huge amount of data that is being gathered about us as individuals. And that's very different than when you bought a newspaper or you listened to the radio and so on. Of course, advertisers were still segmenting. You were selling things you thought women would buy to a women's magazine and so on. But the individualized nature of, of what you're being served is, I think, quite different and so that to me is is one element i would pull out as as very significant i think a lot of the others that we think of as as new conventionally like the speed if you actually look back you can find plenty of examples where let's say news is sent through a telegram and extra is printed and it's on the street within 10 or 15 minutes from an event happening so that seems to me more of a continuum yeah but the element of data. And then I'd say the other one is, of course, the ability of us to have what we call many to many communication. So rather than having to be filtered through a newspaper, etc., um, we can have many to many communication on a scale that we have not seen before. And the influence of that remains, I think, uh, a big open question. That's really interesting because, of course, our worldviews and political opinions are now so public and commoditized or I suppose you could say farmed by these uh, media companies who can tailor the content we see and engage with to whatever narrative they believe we as individuals want to engage with which gives the impression to us as consumers that we are consuming the truth whereas often it's just an echo chamber designed to keep us tuned in and clicking on links and it takes a great deal of technological literacy to understand how we're being targeted and how our opinions are being weaponized in some instances. And 
I wonder if before the advent of social media, if there was perhaps more opportunity to avoid engaging in conversations or disputes with friends and family about our individual worldviews. I mean, I remember it being considered impolite to ask what newspaper someone read, whereas now we can see how our peers feel about issues affecting us all whenever we open our phones or laptops. Um, so it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this constant reminder of our political differences online is what's contributing to the extreme division that we've been living through as a society and that that is also hindering our ability to find common ground. So I suppose my next question is, are there any lessons that can or should be learnt from history as we negotiate a mode of communication that is still very much in its infancy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are there are lots of them. Some of them are, are very basic, like I've said, to pay attention to business models, which we do too infrequently because we focus so much on the individual pieces of content, individual posters, and, and that's obviously very tempting. But, but actually what we see historically and now is that the question of, of business models is really crucial. So too the question of countries and jurisdictions using media for broader cultural, political, economic influence. Um, we shouldn't forget that Musk is not the sole owner of Twitter. Actually, his biggest backer is Saudi Arabia. And so here we see the influence of uh, a country which which doesn't really appear to have in its, in its own borders um, any kind of support for free speech for all of those who live there. And that to me is, is another reminder that we need to look at this through what, what historians like Richard John call political economy. So how do politics and business models actually interact. And that I think really helps us to understand this, this present moment beyond some of the content, although of course content analysis is, is deeply important. And what we can also do, which I've done in a bunch of work, is to even look at some of the legislation and regulation that the policymakers are now trying to put into play, whether it's um, legal ways to try to protect news outlets through copyright or other types of legislation. Actually, quite often there are parallels with what was done in the radio era. And that at least helps us and hopefully policymakers to understand here's what's been done before, here's why it worked or didn't work, and here are some of the broader ramifications of, of focusing on those particular areas. Okay, so changing tack a little, I really wanted to talk to you about your uh, fascinating course module that you run for your third and fourth years, I believe, in which you ask them to use Wikipedia as part of an assignment for the uh, for your international history in the 20th century course. And I just wondered if you wouldn't mind elaborating on this project and the motivations and inspirations behind it. Yes, so basically I ask students in this course to uh, work in groups to write a Wikipedia page about an event, person, organization, or place in international history that doesn't have a Wikipedia entry yet. And so over the course of the semester, we start with the students brainstorming and figuring out what are the pages that don't exist, and then we narrow down to make sure that we figure out, okay, there's got to be enough secondary sources for you to actually write a Wikipedia page. And then of course they they learn how to use wikipedia and then they pull together a page and they do everything the wikipedia page should have and then uh, we use the wikipedia education dashboard and the pages get looked at and then they get launched in about week nine or ten of the semester and then the neat thing is through the remaining three or four weeks of the semester i can then track and see how often those articles have been viewed by outsiders and i came to this assignment because 
when I was writing my lectures, one of the things I would always do is I would look to see what Wikipedia was saying about the things I was lecturing about, because I knew that students were going to look at that too. And often I would find pages that hadn't been written yet and think to myself, oh, it'd be really great if somebody wrote this page. And then finally, it just occurred to me, why am I not working with my students to do this? It's a wonderful thing that we can bring to the table. I have a very international set of students who bring fantastic language skills and other sorts of knowledge to the table. And that was what really inspired me to set this assignment. And I'll say that for me, it's really transformed the course. And I think it's really transformed students' engagement with it and their excitement about producing something that can be seen by hundreds of thousands of people around the world is, let's say, a lot higher than just writing a paper that only I will see. Yeah, and I actually came across this module because you had, rather appropriately for this discussion, tweeted about it. Um, But I thought it was so interesting, particularly because we've been told repeatedly uh, not to use Wikipedia as a source or as a cited source, at least. Um, But this project really feels like you're working alongside Wikipedia, using yours and your students' knowledge to enrich its content, but also acknowledge that it exists as a useful and powerful educational tool. Um, What are the students' reactions to the course? So one of one of their first reactions is trepidation, because generally none of them have edited Wikipedia before and they think it involves learning how to code and there's a really high barrier to entry and so on. So that's the first thing is, is helping them get over that. And, and I'm very fortunate to work with, as I said, something called the Wikipedia Education Dashboard, which is, is not available in every country around the world, but it's available in quite a few. And you can apply for your course to be part of this education dashboard. And Wikipedia has created these great five minute modules that students can go through and just learn how to use Wikipedia. And if they have technical questions, there's a person they can turn to. And so that really helps to lower students' anxiety. And of course, the more times I've done it, the more I can point to previous students who looked like them and were in the same year as them and did these amazing pages. And I say by the end, they're just, they're so proud and they're so excited and they're thrilled to be able to show their family something they've done. And then the final part of this exercise is I I get them to do it in groups and then they all have to write individual reflections on what they learned from from this assignment. And those are the private, so that only I or the the teaching assistants can, can see them. And what's fantastic is then you really do get a sense of what students got out of this assignment. So the first thing is they, they always give me new ideas how to improve the assignment, which is amazing. And then the second is they'll, they'll often say things like, I learned what an argument was because on Wikipedia, I couldn't have one. Oh, and that's, that's interesting. It's extremely interesting. And they also really talk about, for, for many of them, I think the the excitement and the pride of making Wikipedia a more diverse space. Because one of the things we also talk about is we talk about the the composition of Wikipedia editors who are overwhelmingly male. Also that that many of them then tend to have more pages they're writing about games than they are about, say, Latin American feminists. And so for many of the students, it's just really exciting for them to be able to bring some of their interests onto a site and know that will live on for longer. And the final thing I'd say is sometimes the students are extremely prescient. So this year, earlier this year, we were choosing our various Wikipedia entries in January, and many of the students chose things around uh, NATO or Partnership for Peace or uh, things related to nuclear power in Kazakhstan. And then, of course, because of the, the terrible war that has broken out in Ukraine, that meant that when these pages went up, they were viewed hundreds of thousands of times 
instantaneously. And I think for the students who obviously felt there was a limit to what they could really do in this this terrible situation, they felt they'd at least done something to contribute yeah. to a broader public's understanding of what was happening and the history of it. And that's incredibly powerful, especially with, you know, so much misinformation and disinformation that's floating around. But I suppose that also brings us to the problem of Wikipedia in that my understanding of it is that anybody can edit it. So how do you think we can negotiate the issue of accuracy and false information? And obviously, as diligent as your students are, and this project really is the perfect way to write a Wikipedia article, there are still people who go on and, you know, change a public figure's name or make up some erroneous fact about a historical event. Um, are we able to tread the line between issues of democratisation and authority and open access versus intellectual property? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's one that Wikipedia itself is always trying to navigate. So there is a hierarchy within the Wikipedia editors of some who are higher up in the chain, who have reliably edited a huge number of articles, who can then come in and effectively block the edits of other editors. But of course, there are well-known Wikipedia wars, particularly about anything politically controversial. We think anything related to Israel and Palestine. There have obviously been uh, Wikipedia wars, or, or maybe there have been ones, you know, about some some sort of video game that people feel very passionately about. But they, I know um, that Wikipedia does continually try to think about how to improve this. So there, are, of course, systems. There are still hierarchies of editors. And I think they constantly reflect on how do you make this as open access as possible, but at the same time avoid the problem of trolls coming in. Now, one of the, the bigger problems, I think, within Wikipedia, which has been investigated by scholars, including Francesca Tripodi, is the, the question of notoriety. And so what Tripodi has, has shown is that quite often when people will write uh, pages about women, for example, those women will then uh, not actually get their page in the end because they will be deemed not famous enough. Whereas an equivalent, a man with equivalent achievements will have his Wikipedia page. And of course, there's the infamous, infamous example of the uh, woman who won, I believe it was the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, who didn't yet have a Wikipedia page and had been turned down several times. So this is more of the place where we see some of these problems is that for uh, women, or um, people from other types of marginalized or racialized communities. Uh, these are the kinds of uh, people who might not get pages. I will say that one of the good things about working through the Wikipedia education dashboard is that then we have dedicated Wikipedians working with us and we've never had that problem. So it's one of the other reasons I really like working through a class because it ensures that, that the women and other types of people that we are writing about who really definitely deserve pages are actually going to get them up there because we're getting quite dedicated service from Wikipedia. And it does seem like something that historians should be engaging more with, especially in their teaching, um, if only to ensure that factual accuracy is maintained on Wikipedia and it can emerge as a more reliable tool for researchers. Uh, the issue of representation is interesting, especially because it seems to mirror mine and I'm sure many of our listeners' experiences with secondary literature and archives. You know, for me, I'll often go into the archives and 60% of the time, at least, you'll get a big box of documents where women's voices and experiences are way outnumbered by those relating to men's lives. And it seems that something similar is perhaps happening with Wikipedia. And I wonder if that's because men's voices are continuing to be prioritised, perhaps something to do with, as you mentioned before, the typical demographic of Wikipedia editors, or that the availability of secondary sources is reliant on the canon of history, which has only fairly recently begun to develop and become more inclusive, or perhaps both. Um, 
But either way, with more historians and students working to edit and create articles, it seems that we can only improve representation on the site. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and what's great about this assignment is that it actually helps me talk with the students about these kinds of dynamics, because sometimes they will come up with absolutely fabulous women and we will dig and we will see that there aren't enough secondary sources to write a Wikipedia page. So that then raises the question with the students, well, why haven't historians written about this amazing woman? And then we can say, well, do you think it's because of the archival material or is it just this, this wasn't a topic that people were interested in? And so every year, of course, we have hundreds of ideas that we don't get to write. And quite often it's because the secondary source material isn't there. And so when we think about how historians can contribute, one is obviously writing that kind of material that then can be used in the Wikipedia entry. And the other is, you know, trying to figure out if there are spaces to work with Wikipedia. And I found my space through a class because in terms of how this gets recognized, it's quite tricky because if you're, say, uh, trying to get a job, how do you prove that you've edited this Wikipedia page? Is this really seen as, as something that's, that's quote unquote, uh, useful? Um, but I think there are ways of thinking about how to incorporate it and, and teaching is one, maybe in research projects, that's another, just adding it to the end of it. Not only are you doing the research with students, but you're also getting them to bring that research to a wider audience because you, uh, apart from doing say radio or, or TV, you almost can't think of a place where your research can have as large an impact as it does when you write a Wikipedia page. Absolutely. Recognising it as a contribution to the public life of your research would be incredibly helpful, um, especially to early career academics. Um, there's also something to be said, I think, for the opportunities or project ideas that might inspire um, future postgrad students, or at least highlight to them gaps in knowledge. Um, have you had any of your students pursue their chosen Wikipedia topics further? Oh, it's a good question. Not as far as I know, but a lot of my students are actually international relations majors. And so often they're not going on to further study in, in history, um, but it's wonderful that they have that historical background they've been taking with them. Okay, so final question then. Uh, what more do you think historians could be doing to harness technology in their work and teaching? There are so many historians already doing amazing things with technology. There are ancient Egyptian historians who are using TikTok. There are uh, people using, obviously, Twitter. There's me using Wikipedia. And of course, there's the more now what we see quote unquote traditional uh, people who are doing radio and television. And, and in many ways, you know, the United Kingdom is particularly strong in those sorts of things. There's a deep fascination with history. But I think the other development that we've really seen over the last five to 10 years is that historians want to be engaged in more public history. They see it as deeply important in, in part because of uh, politicians and others who are perhaps distorting history, in part because we want to talk about the histories that are less told. And so that to me is all, I think, really positive signs. The question, the bigger questions are, how do we recognize that kind of work so that young historians feel that it's worthwhile and don't feel that they're doing it just off the side of their desk? The other part of it is how do we support people who may be experiencing online harassment, hate speech, or other sorts of very negative effects as a result of doing this kind of engagement, which unfortunately also does happen. And those to me are two quite important components of this that, that we should continue to talk about if we want to see people doing this kind of engagement, which I think a large number of historians actually want to encourage. I completely agree. And as much as I would love to continue chatting about this, 
we are unfortunately out of time. But thank you so much for such a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, would you like to tell our listeners where they can hear more about your work, follow you, or just engage with you further? Yes. Yep. So you can, uh, my website is HeidiToforek.com or you can follow me on uh, Twitter if you still use it at HeidiToforek or uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I will leave those links in the show notes alongside where you can find us, the European Review of History on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, all of the places, as well as links to where you can read the journal itself. But thank you so much, Heidi, for coming on the podcast. And thank you also for being our very first guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European Review of History podcast. If you'd like to hear more discussions like this, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.